0: Listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania. And before I had kids, I wished that they would inherit my thick brown hair, which I had gotten from my father and his father before them. And at least one of my children has it.
1: Beautiful, Rachel Jackson rabbi at Agudas Israel Congregation, Hendersonville, North Carolina. Um, and before I had a child, I wished that they would inherit a combination of my dark hair but my husband's thick, wavy, wonderful hair. Hmm.
0: Well, as it turns out, I have two sons. And one of them has thick blonde hair and the other one has thin brown hair. So... <laughs> Thank Genetics. <laughs> How about you? How did it work out for you?
1: So it worked out. So my husband's hair is a, a blonde with some red undertones, and his beard is, you know, definitely blonde, brown, red combination. I have, for those that haven't seen pictures of me, I have extremely dark chocolate brown hair um, where it looks black in some light. And our son has just straight up watered down chocolate brown hair. Huh. Um, it kind of looks like, oh, maybe cappuccino or something like that. And its thickness is a combination. It, it's not nearly as thick and whatever. I can't think of the, the right adjective to describe my husband's hair, but it's also not as thin as mine. I have very fine hair. Um, so my son's hair is not very fine, um, but it, it has a mind of its own and that's just hilarious. And now that he's seven, um, I was under the impression that maybe we should start combing it or something. We hadn't really before this, um, combed it. And so I tried to do that the other day and he looks at me and he's just like, I don't care. I went, okay, your life. I'm not going to care either. (laughs) that's. That's fine. That's fine.
0: You know, of all of the hard-to-believe, crazy, out-of-this-world, complicated parts about this universe, genetics are one of the things that really blows my mind. Like, just sexual reproduction in and of itself. That you can take the building blocks of one creature and another creature and just, like, Strip them down into a soup and then make something new that isn't like Mm 50-50. That could mm -mm. be any number of proportion of whatever of either one. And you have no idea what's going to come out the other side. And yet, what does come out the other side is often fairly recognizable. That you'd be like, yeah, my son really does look like me. And he's got my nervous tics. And he's my other son uh, does not and my one son is allergic to the sun which is not really allergic to it it's a it's a weird short circuit in in your brain where you get too much light and you sneeze um, my mom had it <laughs> i have it and one of my sons has it but not the other is it
1: no not the other hmm. yeah genetics is so bizarre it, maybe that's why we like legos right like imagine that that are four base pairs that make up our DNA. At that, combine one again from a um, scientific standpoint. We need one male and one female in our genetics to make this happen. Um, combine these genes, and next thing you know, you get a completely different structure. But what's amazing is that it's so similar. Unlike Legos, right, where you sort of take one person, you strip them down to their base pairs, you take the other person, strip them down to their base pairs, and you combine it, and it looks like their child's. Like, it looks like their results. It could have, the, the the possibilities that it could be something completely different is amazing, right? So um, when you have, there's this concept of recessive gene and dominant gene. So if you have, let's say, for example, um, that you have two people who have brown eyes and their child is overwhelmingly going to then have brown eyes. But perhaps let's say the mom, her mom has blue eyes. All right, so this, this would-be child, this hypothetical child's grandparent, has blue eyes. So there's the potential of this child to then have blue eyes. But it's such a low potential because it is a recessive gene, not a dominant gene. And that question of what is recessive and what is dominant and what is just, you know, not up for us to decide and it's just sort of like a grab bag, And where are these things? And do we know where they are? What are the traits? How do we find them? And mapping that onto this genetic code or the genome is absolutely fascinating. And humans have their own particular genome. Fruit flies, like anything that has DNA has a genome. This is one of the things that we talked about several weeks ago when we were talking with Professor Dan Janis, and looking at the genome of these viruses, right? So they were using RNA and we use DNA, but it's the same sort of concept that we can figure out where these things are and what happens if we mess with them. And and that's where the conversation that I wanted to go today is. What happens when we mess with them? Hmm. So in our series, we've been talking, sort of going through the life cycle of people, Um, so last time we were able to talk about puberty and different ideas there. And so this week I really wanted to focus on sort of the next stage of life, which is pregnancy and all the things that come up for people around that time of life. And a caveat, something that I feel that I, I need to say, um, not, yeah, just that I, that I feel like I need to say if a person or people, choose not to have children, that is their choice. And that is a perfectly good way to live. And if people choose to have one, if people choose to have 10, that is their choice. And so that's something that I also want to be very clear today, that just because we're talking about this does not mean that it is the way to live in our worlds. And I feel the societal pressure that, well, you're not really, oh, you're only having one, what's wrong with you? Or you're choosing to be child-free, not childless. And so there is nothing less about not choosing to have a child. So even if you yourself, our listeners, have not had a child or are choosing not to have a child, I think this conversation can still be important because it's going to bring in questions of ethics and medical ethics, um, so I just I just wanted to put that out there. And also I'll be using the terms male and female to identify rather than gendered terms of woman and man. Um, because we recognize and we support and are allies to our LGBTQ family and our friends. Um, and so we recognize that the human species needs to have male and female in order to reproduce. How a person expresses themselves and who they are gendered is not necessarily part of that conversation then. So I just wanted to add those caveats and those, that understanding in our conversation today. So all of that, all of that to say, it's totally amazing that we can take DNA from two different people, split it up the middle, and then combine it and create another creature, like another human being, not a creature, a human being,
0: <laughs> not just a random, creature.
1: <laughs> just some random creature. <laughs> a one percent chance. It's a well, that'd be amazing, <laughs> right? Or like that question. Um, so I, I, I um, carried my child, and so when I was pregnant with him. People would say, so what are you having? And like, that's such a weird question. It's like, <laughs> um, a dinosaur. I'm having a stegosaurus. Like, <laughs> so Zach, I don't know if Nicole had that question or if you ever had that question on her behalf.
0: All the time. People are so <laughs> preoccupied with unborn fetuses, genitals. It's unsettling. Yes. Like, We're when else do we ever talk it's about human.
1: it? Like, really? When else are we, or, or worse, so... Are you going to have another like when else do we casually talk about people's sex lives like that is literally none of your business? It would be like asking the question. So are you and your partner having unprotected sex tonight?
0: Yeah. Anytime a wow. couple says, like, we're trying for another one, that's, that's all I think is like, wow, you just told me that you and your your partner are just going to have a lot of sex. Thanks for that. I didn't need to know that. Right.
1: This, this is like <laughs> somehow in our semi-Puritan <laughs> society, we're allowed to be that invasive and that open
0: about this topic. Right. Um, it's, it's so like bizarre. Or it's like asking someone like, so um, have you thought about getting a nose job? And right. it's like you know what? This is my body. And maybe we don't talk about this right now. This seems kind of. a
1: Right. It seems kind of not appropriate because we're just not in that kind of relationship. And that's that's a boundary crosser. Um, but we what we do, we ask that question of like, so what are you having? Which is a question of genitalia. And we now in the last I'm just going to not go through the whole medical thing. So I'm just going to use very broad, broad decades, right? Within the last 100 years, we've now been able to be clarified what the genitalia will be of an of a fetus, of a yet-to-be-born fetus using ultrasound techniques, right? So plus or minus 60 years we've been able to do this, which is pretty cool. But it doesn't really actually change anything, just FYI. Doesn't, doesn't change anything. But now we know. And then within the last few decades, we've been able to do more than ultrasounds. Ultrasounds give us a glimpse into what is going on. And we hopefully focus on the genitalia. And I say hopefully because that means everything else is fine. That means the heartbeat is going well. That means the shape of the head is forming. That means you can see the organs that are happening and forming and that the brain is going, right? That it's all connecting and it's working. And if you're getting to the point where you're really excited about if it's a boy or a girl, then that means everything else is okay. And that's not always the case. It's not always the case with ultrasound. So what do we do? What do we do? But before we get to that conversation, I want to take a step back. We we're talking about recessive and uh, dominant genes. <clears throat> and now we're going to get into some odd territory, too, of ethnicity. So, Zach, have you heard of the royal blood disease? Right,
0: like the in royal Russia, blood disease. Like in Russia. Oh, in Russia, are we talking about like, like the czars. The, um, the czars that are so inbred that they have all of these medical problems? They had a a whole there was a whole shtick on that on Thirty Rock for uh, yeah. for a while.
1: Okay, so there's there's two there's two royal families in the European continent that are pretty famous for medical issues. One is sort of the Russian side, which is hemophilia. Mm. Um, which is sort of a royal blood disease. Royal because a lot of the royals had it. And the other is the Habsburgs, um, Mm -hmm. where they were so inbred that it caused massive issues. And by the end of the line, the person was sterile, right? There was just so many genetic issues that the person was sterile and couldn't then have any more of their own children. Um, And there, there went the end of the line. Right, so the Habsburgs and and that. So that's an inbreeding. But there's other ways <laughs> of <laughs> of um gosh, what is the word I'm looking for? Of being in relationship in a small group without having these dramatic inbreeding issues.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: One of those that's fairly common that I'm mostly intimately familiar with is the Ashkenazi Jewish list. And the reason that that exists is Ashkenazi Jews are Central or Eastern European Jews and for a very, very long time, it was illegal punishable by death to marry a Jewish person. And it was illegal punishable by death to convert to Judaism. So what do you do with that population? (laughs) Right? They just breed with each other. Luckily, the population was large enough that it didn't cause these massive inbreeding issues that we see in, in some cultures or in the, in the Habsburgs. But that has caused some genetic issues and genetic traits. And we know that now. And one of the things, so there's this idea of genetic screening between two people and to see what is their genetic recessive disorders. Recessive meaning they themselves are its carrier status, right? It's you carry this gene, doesn't affect you, but you hold it. And you could pass it along to your child. And the question is, if you're holding it and your partner is holding it, your child's 25% going to get it. Like Mm. like that's, so if you're holding something and your partner is holding something, but neither one of you have it, your child will have a 25% chance of getting it.
0: And then a 75% chance of being a holder if they don't get it.
1: A <clears throat> uh, 50% chance or... of being a holder and a okay. 25% chance of not even caring, of not even being a carrier. Got it. Right. Beautiful. <laughs> right. That's sort of how these things work. Of all genes being equal, that's how it would work. Well, the Ashkenazi Jewish population has around a hundred pretty nasty diseases some less nasty than others right most are icky but not traumatic or disastrous um so what we do is if we have an ethnically and this is where I'm, where I'm saying it's getting a little sticky because we recognize that people are people and every you know diversity is amazing and we want people to just love and live and yay but the reality is That if you have, and that also, I just want to say that when a person converts to Judaism, you're Jewish, but genetically doesn't have the same gene pool.
0: No, you mentioned Ashkenazi Jews. Yes. That's not the only group. Thank you. Before I met you, I didn't know this. So I imagine a lot of our listeners also don't know these distinctive Mm. genetic groups.
1: Thank you. I'm so absorbed in that world that I forget that. Thank you. Um, So Ashkenazi Jews showed up in Central Eastern Europe plus or minus a thousand years ago. So we'll just use that time frame. Where else were Jews in the world about a thousand years ago? In what's considered the ancient Near East or the Middle East, or however you want to understand um, Israel, Egypt, that part of the world, right? And then in the 1500s, 1492, not talking Columbus, talking... The expulsion of Jews, right? And these are um, Sephardic Jews, and that's the uh, that's one of the other terms, right? Sephardic Jews are those that come from Spain or the Iberian Peninsula, to be more accurate. But five hundred years ago, they were kicked out of there, and they had to go somewhere. And so, where did they go? They went to the Ottoman Empire or South America. So those are Sephardic Jews, as the primary differences there's also different rites r i t e Yemenites Iraqi um etc those are much smaller populations mostly coming from a mix of sephardic and the local populations so even the jews that are living in india those were most of them were considered sephardic jews right because prior to the, prior to the expulsion in in 1492 their families came from spain so hmm. when we look at a genetic, when we look at from a genetic standpoint, it's really two groups of people, Sephardic and Ashkenazi.
0: Um, and the, the Sephardic have had more intermingling outside of their own group.
1: Bingo. Bingo. Okay. Because Spain and, and Portugal was like, get out of here. And so where did they go? They spread. Right? They went to lots of different places and they intermingled. So, their genetic, their gene pool was much larger. Ashkenazi, not so much. Tiny yeah. little shtetls, and the entire shtetl would be picked up and moved to a different
0: place. And so, European Christians are awful. Right. Historically, I think that's pretty uncontested. Yeah.
1: So, the Jews living in those regions. Then were had a much different experience than the Sephardic Jews.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so their ability to find someone to marry was challenging. It, without going into all of the details of how not quite accurate this was, um fiddler on the roof. <laughs> if anyone has seen that, right? One of the challenges that Tevier has is he has to marry off his daughters. And there aren't any there aren't any suitable Jews in their city, right? So where does he has to find them from elsewhere, um, right? That 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 kind of challenge of like, okay, I've got seven daughters, what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> um, and they they brought in a matchmaker. Yay, right? And if anyone's got the song right, matchmaker, matchmaker, make there me a match, go. find me a find, <laughs> catch me a catch. And so they did. And the matchmaker's job, and this is getting us back to the genetic question, the matchmaker's job was not just to match them with someone who could produce children, someone who could keep a roof over their their heads and um, you know, happiness and love, sure, but that's that's a new issue. But the matchmaker's job way back when, right, pre pre modernity, was to know this family, did they have any issues? Right? And were there lots of issues? Did they lose children? Not miscarriage, but did did their children die at young ages? And knowing that piece of information and saying, "Ah, and I have a family over here right this 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 bride's family her her family has had all these little graves, these little baby graves, and this groom's family, his family has all these little graves for children. Do not combine them hmm. right, and they just know that again, they didn't understand genetics, but they knew that there was something in this family's blood." that caused these issues. And if the same issues arose in someone else's gene pool or someone else's bloodline, you don't combine those people. So that helped, that's one of the roles of the Ashkenazi Jewish matchmaker was to make sure that those genetic issues sort of stopped with the families as much as they could. So what we do now is we actually do genetic pre-testing. Test the adults. So Zach, if I can ask the personal question, did you and Always. Nicole have this question or wrestle with this, or did anyone even bring this up to you to have your own genetics tested?
0: No, <laughs> not even a little. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that would have been so strange and invasive, and no one would have ever thought to do that.
1: Okay. And after you had conceived, did that even come up?
0: There were no. I. No, they, they, no, (laughs) like maybe a little bit when we're thinking about like, well, heart disease runs in both of our families. So we just need to make sure we're eating right. But like, that's, that's kind of the extent of it.
1: Right, right. For our segment of the population, we actually talk about pre-genetic testing, where we say, okay, if you two want, if you're both genetically Ashkenazi Jewish, Let's get you pre-tested and see if you're a carrier, see if this is a recessive gene. One of the most famous ones that people might've heard about is Tay-Sachs. And Tay-Sachs is a um, a neurodegenerative disease, basically where there's a piece of fat, right? That that the brain just turns to fat rather than being a muscle. And because it's a muscle or should be a muscle, it controls things. Um, And starting around six months old, um, it just stops. So if you've ever been around a child, an infant who's about six months old, they're not they're just starting to develop any ability to have language, right? Just ahs and oohs and whatever, just somehow forming things. Um, they're just beginning to to really sit up and hold themselves, right? But they're not really mobile, right? They're not crawling, they're not walking, but they're they're able you can just plop them down on the floor and be like, okay, here's your key ring. Have, go to town, right? <laughs> Those plastic keys. Um, and starting around that age with Tay-Sachs, that's when it starts to become degenerative to the point of losing all muscle control, uh, going blind, going deaf, having zero physical ability, and eventually suffocating um, with lungs. And most children die by the age of five, if not sooner. And it is a horrific death. The the dying the degeneration is traumatic, and the death itself is awful. And That's Tay-Sachs, and that's one of several diseases that are like that. Um, so we suggest, um, and that I think I have to double check what the numbers are. There's been much more intermarriage recently, which is good for the gene pool. I'm not going to say how it is for the religion, but it's good for the gene pool. <laughs> Um, where the numbers are going down, but I, at one point I looked and it was something like one in 20, one in 20 were carriers of Ashkenazi. Yeah. Huge. Um, and if, if anyone has been to an ultra orthodox enclave, um, there's a lot more infant graves than the general population,
0: um, for all these different genetic issues, so Are people getting so people are getting tested before they get married?
1: Correct. So they can see if they're right, are you a carrier? And if Does, you're not a carrier, okay then.
0: Hmm. I like if if you were to get tested before mm-hmm. you got married and you found that you're both carriers. Right. Like would that change your decision to get married at all? What do you think? Would you, I,
1: <laughs> what would you do?
0: I think, well, if I – back when I was getting ready to get married, I think um, I could have found out that Nicole was, you know, secretly a Martian or she had a disease where her hair would catch on fire every 10 years or something. And I would still probably have married her and be like, we'll figure it out down the line. I don't care that you've been cursed by a witch or something.
1: That's future Uh, Zach's
0: problem. (laughs) Right, right. Because past Zach was puppy dog love and so I wouldn't have cared. Mm -hmm. Um, Later down the line, though, you know, as time went on and we thought about kids and thought, like, that's just going to be that's going to be so dangerous, potentially. I don't know if I want to do that. And then I maybe we'll have felt regret. I don't know. I, this is this is all brand new thought experiments to me. Right.
1: So let's keep going with that thought experiment. Right. So let's say you do get married because love triumphs and love is amazing and kids don't make marriage. Right. Mm -hmm. Marriage is its own entity. And so you can say, yes, we choose to start a family. Turns out we don't want to do that to us. Right. Very few people, I think, would say, oh, I'm a carrier and my partner's a carrier. Let's try it. (laughs) Those are good (laughs) odds. No, those are not good odds. Those are bad odds because the result is so bad. So the answer is no, let's not do this, quote unquote, the natural way. But let's say you're just so tied to seeing those ticks in your kids, to to knowing that your kid is like you genetically, that you're just tied to that idea. So, what are some options? Right, hmm? Zach? Do you know like what are your options?
0: Uh, no, I would have no idea. I mean, if both partners are carriers, yeah, I mean, we don't have the technology to like isolate and splice out those. Sure do. Things. What?
1: No, sure we do. Don't.
0: No, we do not.
1: Here's what we do have. Stop it. We have the ability to create zygotes, where you take a sperm and you take an egg in IVF, right? So you make the woman like. Okay, so just a little bit of medical technology, and sorry I'm dominating the conversation. Take a little bit of technology.
0: <laughs> I'm glad it's not me dominating the conversation about pregnancy and, and <laughs> Jewish genetics. That right. would be very that would be. inappropriate. That would be. Thanks, so, patriarchy.
1: Go gen- on. <laughs> Generally speaking, um, a woman ovulates and um, yields one egg per monthly cycle, Right. And then if things if um, if intercourse happens at that time and everything is ripe, then there is pregnancy that's able to happen. But you don't want to just take one at a time when you're trying to do IVF, you want a whole bunch. So you just like load the woman up with hormones and all these other things. And then you go in and you grab a whole bunch of eggs um, at the same time. We're just like, yes, I got
0: 10 eggs. I can't help but imagine like a farmer going through and picking chicken eggs. (laughs) Picking chicken eggs, that's right.
1: I'm going to grab a bunch of
0: eggs. This is all very scientific.
1: Tinier, tinier little pinchers, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's that's all it is. So you take all of these and you take the sperm and you take take a sperm and you're just like, hi, meet your partner. And they come together in a petri dish or a test tube, right? Test tube babies. And we've had that technology, you know, 40 ish years. Right. And now, what? But. The sperm and the egg get together and are just like, oh, it's so beautiful. Let's make more of us. And they go from that one to two to four to eight. And then pause. You pause everything at eight cells.
0: What do you mean you pause it?
1: You stop the reactions from continuing. You stop stop that. You freeze them. Like I don't I don't know the science behind it.
0: Like actually freezing them in a like, in like you just like you, you put freezer. it like
1: you put it in stasis. That's not the right word, but like you okay. just stop the reaction.
0: <laughs> Sorry, right? this is all science fiction to me. So keep yes. going.
1: And then you take one of those eight cells and you do this lots of sperm, lots of eggs. And you take one of those eight cells and you look at it and you say, All right, this is going to tell me all of the genetics of the future fetus and child. Oh, yeah. And you can say, ah, this child will have Tay-Sachs. This child will have cystic fibrosis. This child will have brown eyes, brown hair, generally be tall, will have no heart disease, will be male. And one one eighth of this will tell you that. And then you say, ah, I've taken a look. I know that this one doesn't have Tay-Six. It doesn't have any genetic disorders. Fantastic. Let it continue to grow. Let me pop it in your uterus or a surrogate uterus if yours is not a good place to grow things. And then you grow the child's and you're fine. That's off. So,
0: wait. Okay. (laughs)
1: I'm blowing Zach's mind. Okay. So I know, that, I, I know that I know that this is audio like... and Zach's head is like literally exploding.
0: <laughs> I know. We should have been recording the video. I'm smacking it in my microphone and everything. Yeah. Okay. So you get a bunch of bunch of fertilized eggs, yes. and and then the doctor says to you, All right, we've got 16 here and um, seven of them are with are are not going to have tay sex. Mm-hmm. Um, do you then get the choice like, do you want a boy? Do you want a girl? Do you want a tall kid, a short kid? Or are they sequencing the full genome or just looking for those markers?
1: And that's where this becomes an ethical question, where are we asking we I believe I, Rachel, believe that when we say, I don't want the trauma, and I i know I'm using that word again, and the tragedy of bringing a life into this world only to see it suffer and die. And we are preventing that. And that is amazing. And I completely support that. I think we should use our technology in those ways. The question then becomes, how much information do you get? Because yes, Generally speaking, when you're doing, again, the royal you, when you're doing these investigations of the genome, it's all found. You know what gender, you know what sex it is. You know what hair color and all of these other things that we have genetic markers for. You know what those are. And they test for them all. And so you can have this picture of what this child could look like. And so the question becomes, okay, now you have four Three are male and one is female. Which do you implant? Who gets that choice? Should anyone get that choice? What do you think, Zach?
0: This is where it would be really helpful to have more guests on the show. <laughs> put, put the pressure off of you. Um, yeah, right. Take the pressure off of me because it somehow feels different when we're talking about minimizing suffering and death and weeding out something like T-Sex um, or something else that would inevitably end. In suffering and death. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there is like the next level down where it's like this could potentially cause Mm -hmm. suffering and death. So like markers for heart disease or diabetes or something like that, that may cause suffering down the line, but it's it's kind of your baseline average it sucks to be human suffering (laughs) and then there's like the things that won't really affect that but maybe the family wants that are more cosmetic Mm -hmm. you know about height and and weight and hair color hair color eye color Mm -hmm. things like that and then there's like this whole other category of things that are like um would cause social suffering right like you might say Mm -hmm wow, it is much better to be born a man in this day and age. So if I have a choice, I'm going to raise somebody who's going to be able to get ahead easier in the world Mm -hmm. and be like, I'm we're So we're going to have a son to pass on our name and to Mm -hmm. get a good job. We'll make him tall, tall, (laughs) dark, handsome, as best as we can um, and set him up for success. And then that feels like a different ball game. That feels Mm -hmm. like custom humans. And but not custom humans in the way of, like, designing a genome and then spitting out something, but custom humans in a sort of process of elimination, wasteful kind of a way that then feels... Like, if we're fertilizing a bunch of eggs and only keeping the healthy ones because we're trying to minimize suffering and death, for some reason that feels morally better than creating a bunch just so that we can find the one that's the best. That feels a little more shady. Um, Yeah. For all of the nerds out here, my uh, my brain is immediately going to all of those hours I spent breeding Pokemon and Pokemon Mm -hmm. Shield recently Mm -hmm. on the Switch. And putting two in there, catching an egg, checking to see how strong it is, and then releasing it into the wild. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of strays (laughs) running around the world right now because I wanted to find the perfect one. And that one I kept and trained. And I, I, even in a video game, I felt a little dirty about doing that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's good. I think that means your ethics is kind of uh, in check. Right. But those are the questions that people face every time they go
0: through this process. Yeah. And it's so then it's kind the, of created there, not mm-hmm. intentionally. Right. And then the question becomes who gets to
1: decide? If there is a decision to be made? Again, so let's let's just agree that the suffering, the immediate and ir um irreversible or blanking on the word, um, guaranteed suffering and death, that Mm. we're just, that those those are just not going to be implanted, right? That that we just, we just, that's part of the reason for doing this, right? We're just saying, okay, no, but now we've got four healthy ones, right? Let's keep it at a reasonable number, four, right? That you implant two now, and then you can have a sibling later and implant two in a couple of years, right? But if you have more than that, who's making the decision? Is it the parents? Is it the doctor who's doing the implantation? Is it the geneticist who found this information? Right, so from my perspective, we can, we have to have layers of trust and layers of ignorance. Where the trust is, we trust the geneticist finds the ones that would cause suffering and say so these, ones, these ones aren't going to be um, good, right? To, to use a very subjective term. These five are great. And I'm not going to tell you anything more about it.
0: Mm.
1: And then the doctor, hmm. the implanter, and the parent say, okay, I've got five good eggs. How many do you want to try now? And that's all, that, that's all they know right mean, it creates a a barrier but then we'd need to check and balance with the geneticist to make sure that the genet- so then the geneticist doesn't have any say into oh well did the geneticist really likes girls or the geneticist really likes brown hair right there that's what's good or bad
0: right and then years down the road there's going to be some big breaking story about this geneticist who was like a white supremacist right. uh, patriarchy guy who's been right. intentionally implanting only men for why are
1: there only boys right the rest are bad right so there has to be some sort of check in that situation of right. what's identified and someone to then audit using a a bookkeeping term right to audit what this geneticist is doing so in Judaism the answer is at this point right because we have questions and answers called um, Halakha, response, and uh, responsum, basically says, if it's going to be suffering and death, don't implant them and just destroy the embryos. Other than that, anything other than that, heart disease, Down syndrome, um, right, diabetes, things that just naturally occur that might make it harder in society, No. You you mm. don't get to abort or you don't get to choose to not implant those ones for those reasons. If you say, yeah, I've had enough kids.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The difference in Judaism, which I personally disagree with some of this, is from a gendered standpoint or a sex standpoint, where if you already have two boys, you're allowed to choose a female one. Or if you already have two females, yeah. you're allowed to choose a male one. To ensure a balance in your nuclear family, so that's that's sort of where the halakha rests.
0: Um, okay, that feels like a concession that someone made.
1: Right, but I mean, it's it's right, exactly. That you you get a little bit more because if you if if this if you're both carriers and you want to have multiple children, and you're like, ah, well, I've already had two boys, <laughs> make huh. sure that this one's a girl, then they can. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So, but now let's, let's skip forward on your ethics. Let's say you don't go through that testing, like the majority of people don't, and you're pregnant. Yay! Yay! And you have an ultrasound, and something's not yay. And they ask the question, do you want an amniocentesis? Or do you want... Some other genetic testing of the fetus and amniocentesis is basically where they go into the belly and into the amniotic fluid, take some of the fluid out and test that fluid, which means that they're puncturing the amniotic sac, which is basically the baby's life. Yeah. Right. And so if they puncture it and something goes wrong, there's a 1% chance of miscarriage at that point, which is a decently high percentage yeah. um, for a question mark. Right of what's going to come from this. So, what do you do then?
0: Hmm? Hmm? Defer 100% to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like with most of these decisions that have to do with childbearing and and the, the creation of life, that these decisions should be made by the one carrying the life and fostering the life much more than the person who... Had a little bit of say in the beginning. <laughs> um, but I think at the end, I know what, what she would say would be, okay, well, what what are we going to do with the information we get? Um, and are we considering terminating the pregnancy if we find that it's something awful? And if that's the case, then it's worth taking the chance if we're not going to terminate the pregnancy, that it's not worth taking the chance and we'll see what happens.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think that's a wonderful way of looking at it. If you ask the question, what do you do with the answer? If the answer is nothing, right? That you're doing nothing with the answer that you receive, then why ask the question?
0: It's just for peace of mind.
1: Great, like okay. then, then why, right? Nobody asked that question. Nobody had the ability to ask that question a hundred years ago, mm-hmm. right? You just didn't have that ability. So why ask the question now if you're not going to do anything about it? Mm-hmm. Which then gets us to the religious side of things, right? So Zach, if you could tell us about the various stages of what life is. Like, when does life happen? When does a soul happen? When does, like, in your tradition, when do those pieces happen?
0: Well, um, the various strands of Christianity are all over the place, as is true with almost anything. I came from a church that taught very strictly that life human life begins at conception. So at the moment that the sperm enters the egg and they do their little dance and there is a single cell um, or maybe when that single spell s- splits into two, that's when life exists. That's when there is a soul present. That's when this is a human being and anything you do to that human being in that womb that would be equated to what you would, would done to a person an adult human, essentially. Um, We were that church who uh, protested at um, Planned Parenthood and had awful giant banners of aborted fetuses. And just, we were those people. And I'm horrified now. Um, The tradition I'm in now, the United Church of Christ, is kind of where... Congregational denominations, every church is allowed to do their own thing. But from a national standpoint, um, they would say that life begins um, when a child is on their own, when a child is out of the the mother and is able to live by their own means.
1: Almost a medical Um, definition then,
0: right? Yes. That it's a viable, that it's viable. That it's viable on its own, so after after birth, essentially. So we're not talking like you know, 36 weeks or whatever, but like after the child is out on their own, then they are a a life. And we just we don't bother ourselves with the question of souls entering bodies and whatnot. Um, one person I uh, pointed out that up to 14 days, a an embryo can still become twins. <laughs> And so, after fourteen days is when the soul enters the body, because then you'd need two souls if it was going to be twins. And so, that's the moment that it happens. And when I heard that, it said, "I thought to myself, this whole thing feels very arbitrary. <laughs> like we are really trying to shove a very ancient." almost mystical ideas about how the physical and the spiritual intermingle in what makes humans special from animals. And we are trying to shove that now into scientific understandings of life. And it it gets messy and then we pretend like it's not messy and that makes it messier.
1: Is there is there a differentiation of something which is alive and something which is
0: a human life? Modern progressive Christians would say yes. That, um, though, like a, a tissue in the uterus is alive on its on its own, it is also so heavily connected to the mother, that it is in some sense a part of it and is, is just is not a human uh, being as itself, an autonomous being, um, just definitionally. I mean, mm-hmm. my own perspective is that I try not to have a perspective because it's not my body and I would rather listen to the people who have those bodies and have those experiences to tell me what is happening within them.
1: Although I will push you on that and say that, um, especially as a as a man, uh, being an ally is also important. And so, to understand where your allyship feels in accordance with your morality is important. Mm-hmm. Um, but I appreciate and I applaud the idea that the person who's making these decisions is the person going through these decisions
0: themselves. It also helps that I no longer have a an individual theology of a human soul, mm-hmm. um, which then kind of changes a lot of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Like if you believe that there is an immaterial spiritual thingness that mm-hmm. resides within you and without you that enters into you or is formed into you, and then once you die is freed to continue its everlasting life in whatever afterlife. Like that idea, which honestly is a bit more Hindu than biblical. Um, This is the Atman. We're talking about more than what the Bible would talk about as a spirit, a soul, a life, a person, or whatever. And I mean, when I say Bible, I mean both. Um, Christian and Hebrew Bibles. Um, a lot is read into it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what the, the the Christian Bible promises is a resurrection of humanity, um, that the dead are dead, are dead are dead, and that the promise is not that they die and then are whooshed away in some ethereal state, but the promise is that the God who remembers them will resurrect them and give them new life here on earth with a physical earth and a physical garden and trees and wildlife and all those things. There's not really a promise other than in a couple of isolated places in Paul's writings that talk about being freed from this mortal coil. There's not really a whole lot of indication of an individual eternal soul that is present within a person, Hmm. despite the fact that it's so present within Christian theology historically. It's not really biblical. And so if you no longer have that hindrance, theologically speaking, then this question becomes a lot more scientific. Mm-hmm. Like if that, if that embryo that is growing into a fetus is growing into a child within the womb is, does not have an eternal essence to it. It doesn't have a them that is them, that is them, that is them yet. Then it's an entirely different ethical question. <laughs> then is, is that thing a a divine a carrier of the divine.
1: Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you for for adding to that. I I'd not really thought about it in,
0: in those ways. Um, that also might get me in trouble. So I'm sorry. All of you who are listening, who are a member of my church, don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> all three of you.
1: <laughs> and I'll just say, yay Judaism Uh, (laughs) um because oh man because uh we basically have this idea that um there are okay (laughs) we don't just stick to the bible the bible just influences other conversations such as the talmud which is really just 2700 pages of people arguing with each other um and what does this mean and what does this mean and going on from there and in these pages, one of those examples basically says there's this <laughs> there's i got I just gotta I just gotta actually share the share the line right so we've all heard um an a Hammurabi's code right an eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth an arm for a lar or a limb for a limb a life for a life right. And there's so many ways of answering, what does that mean? You know, it's like, ah, oh, it's revenge. And then the answer is, actually, it's proportionality.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And another is, actually, it's just talking five different kinds of damages and it's using the body as an example of that. Yeah, that's, that's like tour gymnastics right there. Um, <laughs> so we, but we still have that. Right, so if you keep that in mind, and that that's written down in the Bible, right, written down in the Old Testament, and then there's this line in Exodus 21, Exodus 21:22. 21, for anyone that would like to check me, it says, "If men strive together, right, so you got a bar brawl going on, right? So just, just let's just set the scene. I'm just going to quote the whole thing. You got a bar brawl." Right, the bar brawl happens, and this woman comes out and says, oh, "Come on, husband. Time to go home. Like you got to get work in the morning. She's just like walking up there, and she's pregnant and and like a fight ensues, and the non husband accidentally kicks her and hurts her, and she miscarries
0: <clears throat>
1: right." And that's it. Like nothing else. She's not even bruised in the ribs. She doesn't have a scrape on her knee. She just miscarries. Caveat, parenthetical aside, it's not just a miscarriage. It can be very traumatic. I am so sorry if that's ever happened to you. I honor that challenge. That's not the point of this conversation, but I want to recognize that miscarriages are not just miscarriages. Close parentheses. So... She's fine otherwise physically. So then they say, oh, hey, you damaged my fetus. You owe me money. The person who did the damages, what is he supposed to do? And it says, yet no harm follow. He shall surely be fined according as the woman's husband shall lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. Because the only harm came to the loss of the fetus, not to her, but it's in the same, same category as a limb for a limb, a life for a life. But it was a miscarriage. And the person who caused it is not paying with any body part, including his life. From that line, there is the not-so-far leap of, therefore, the fetus is not a life.
0: Hmm.
1: It had potential hey, that could have been a boy and then he could have worked in the farm and you owe me for that damages. You mm. hurt my cow. You hurt my property and therefore you owe me for the damages of my property. But it is not a life. And it's from that line that more, that, that, that our understanding of, so when is this life thing happening and there are other lines that I won't go into the gruesome nature of what they talk about basically it says up to 40 days it's like water so 40 days which scientifically speaking you know it's about six weeks so if anything happens before six weeks whatever like, it's just like water. Like, there's literally nothing else, right? We're not even going to do anything if if a miscarriage or an abortion, a spontaneous or an intentional miscarriage happens, right? We're not going to do anything about that. And then comes that other period of it's still really attached to the female that it is living within as a parasite. Um <laughs> Love being pregnant. It's totally a parasite.
0: Eating your bones.
1: Oh, my God. Again, loved it. Was not, was not, did not feel like myself. Give me back
0: my calcium, child.
1: And my blood supply and my brain cells, please. Um, Never getting them back. Go on. Thanks for that. Um, (laughs) That it is not considered a nefesh. It is not considered a soul, a life, until the moment that the entire head is outside of the body. At that point, when the entire head is outside of the body, then the life of the person delivering it and the life of this child, this infant, are now equal. Up until that point, it is considered as a limb of the mother. So if you imagine a limb and you're just like, this limb has become gangrenous, I must get rid of it. OK, then get rid of the limb. If your life is in danger because this limb is going to cause you death, then you get rid of it. Hmm. It is cons- And so using that language that it is as a limb, I think really changes who owns it, who makes the decision and what can happen to it. I know this is all new for you. Do you care to react? <laughs>
0: um, it sounds like it's being treated like a person who would um, trample on seedlings. And the question then is, do you are you then guilty of destroying my tomatoes or <laughs> just the things that would one day bear tomatoes? Yeah. And that's a distinction I hadn't really <clears throat> considered. And coming from a place like that yeah. from Exodus, that was a that came out of left field. Because we in the evangelical world we would often quote from, especially from Psalms, from some of the more poetic places of mm-hmm. you who formed my parts, um, my innermost being, you knew me from in my mother's womb, all, all of these this language of Personal autonomy before birth and intentionality of creation and all of those were used to um, to give autonomy to the thing before it's born. So it's really interesting to hear that the people who wrote those books interpret them differently than the people who inherited them, well, which is up. so often the case so between often. Christians and Jews.
1: So so holding that holding that idea of of imbuing all of these characteristics into something that is not yet born. Here's a piece from the Mishnah then that I'll share with you. Um and this is trigger warning. It's a little bit graphic and used um as hyperbole. Okay? Um because they didn't actually enforce capital punishment. But this is using that example to highlight and underscore what they're saying. So, in the case of a pregnant woman who is taken by the court to be executed, the court does not wait to execute her until after she gives birth. Rather, she is killed immediately. But with regard to a woman who is taken to be executed while sitting in the throes of labor on the the birthing stool... The court shall wait to execute her. And then the the following conversation is, well, isn't it obvious that the court executes a pregnant woman rather than waiting? After all, it's just a part of her body. The fetus is considered her property. If so, the court should wait until she gives birth before executing her and not cause him to lose the fetus. And this is, nope, actually, this is not taken into account at all. So who gets, so a woman who is pregnant who is meant to be murdered by the state, right? Capital punishment. Yes. Up until the point where she is in active labor on the birth. And so for those of you that are, aren't are so familiar with um, midwifery, on the birthing stool means the woman is pushing. She's not just in labor, like she is pushing and that baby's head is like coming out.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Only until that point, they can execute her up until then.
0: Worth noting, too, that the Mishnah is not a modern document.
1: Thank you. Yes, the Mishnah was written down uh, approximately 1900 years ago. Yeah. Um, so contemporary with other Christian, with Christian sources that might be interpreting this in a mm-hmm. completely different way. So that's sort of the Jewish way of understanding this.
0: Okay. Interesting, the though, bird. that it's considered a part of the mother's body and not the father's property, as I would imagine a patriarchal society would want to do that, like, don't execute her until she's given birth because that's, that child is my property, is how I would imagine them back then to be thinking. But- no,
1: and that was, that was the question that came out in the Gemara, which was written about 200 years later. Like, wait a minute. It's his property. He should get a say. Right? He doesn't. And it's like, actually, it's not his property until it comes out.
0: Wow. So 2,000 years ago, there were people saying that a woman's body is, is her body, her choice. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. It's her body. And
1: who gets to choose? She does. Mm. Yeah. Mm.
0: <laughs> well, the early Roman Christians got real weird about sex and real controlling about their patriarchy, and that really went a long way into informing what Christianity in Europe would develop as for the next couple thousand years. And we are still recovering a lot from from that. And so it's actually kind of refreshing to hear that contemporaries of early Christians, and probably some early Christians as well, were, in, were reading these verses and thinking about life in these ways. Yeah. So when
1: we're thinking about life in these ways— I think it's really important for us to recognize that it's not so clear cut. That um, that these are difficult choices. That there's no easy answers. There are no, frankly, actual answers that everyone can follow. It's right. It's not math. It's not two plus two equals four. It's that every situation is unique in of itself, and the people who are actually impacted. Should be the one to be making these decisions, not somebody else. and um I'll just sort of use this platform to also say that lawyers and politicians have no place in the gynecological office at all ever 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 ever, ever they don't they don't ever have a place I think the only people that even dare to have a place in there is the person whose body it is their medical practitioner and their partner those are the people that get a say and no one else in that order in that order in that order until we come up with some other way of reproducing in that order Hmm. yeah um so go support Planned Parenthood (laughs) go yell at your (laughs) politicians who are not choosing this, who are not recognizing that. And there's a few things that I'll just say that I'm going to put in the show notes Um, because for those of you that have not had the experience of having yourself or a loved one or a person in your circle of concern go through an abortion to have to make that choice, um, it's really easy to... Assign blame, and it's really easy to say what you would have done, but you've never been in those shoes. And anyone considering that choice is not taking it lightly. It's and so I just want to dispel that it's it's never used as a birth control option. It's never used as a um, a a ploy of oops, I just forgot. Well, let me just go down the street and have an abortion. There's no there's no casualness to anyone that's had to make this decision. All the more so, the later in a pregnancy this decision has to be made. The more you've heard felt it kick or heard its heartbeat or watched your own body change to accommodate this. That is not a choice that anyone wants to make. So I will be including in the show notes some stories of people who've had to make those choices um, and how they've how they've dealt with it. Oh. I know that kind of took a serious turn. This isn't quite where we're going. Um, but I think an when... an
0: excellent place to land.
1: And when we're talking about ethics, I think that that's part of our conversation is who gets to make these decisions um, yeah. when, we're, when we're speaking ethics. And when we look at medical ethics, part of the, part of the list is do no harm, personal autonomy... Um, and uh, resources, right? Fair justice and fairness in those ways. So,
0: yeah. Thank you for leading us in this discussion that I'm, I, I'm so glad it was you. <laughs> <laughs> and that the fact that there were so few of us here today meant that you had the space to explore that a little bit further.
1: No, thank you for doing that. And listeners, please, 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 Tell us your, your, your questions. Give us your questions. Give us your, um, your experiences that you're feeling comfortable enough to share. Give us your opinions, right? Tell us, engage us with this conversation because it's, it's even more meaningful the more we hear from you.